welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And this week, Smart Football Month rolls on. This week, we've got a special guest on, friend of the pod, uh, PFF George. Not going to pronounce his last name. You'll find out why later. A data scientist for PFF comes on and talks all things advanced statistics. We are in a soccerless world, my friend. And now I have to do work in the mornings, and my life is not good. It's really bullshit. It is. I don't like it. Not like it at all. And, of course, big news today, Jimmy GQ, dating a porn star. Uh, let's go ahead and take a drink. Live your that. best life, Jimmy. Live your best life. All right. Beers in hand. Show kicking off. Let's get to the rundown, because there's uh, one, I guess, quasi-important, I thought, interesting story here in 49erland, and that's uh, the, the DBU. Defensive back university. That's not what Richard Sherman calls it, but he, he called it a, a defensive back summit, I guess, or a cornerback summit. So Richard Sherman is taking the lead from Larry Fitzgerald. He's hosting a, or he hosted a summit where he invited top corners to come and do some drills, break down film, basically get better at the game. Cool thing was, though, he brought himself a Witherspoon. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, if you haven't read the article, definitely go check it out um, from Robert Klemko on MMQB. Um, it was very interesting. But yeah, I think you look at some of the names, right, that were a, a part of this summit. And, and even though it was just kind of this initial thing, you know, there there were a lot of other people invited that didn't get an opportunity to make it. But you see guys like Sherman, uh, Keep Tlaib, Xavier Rose, Darius Slay, like some of the better cornerbacks in football. And then you see Keller Witherspoon and, uh, that's the one name that I think if you're not, you know, overly familiar with his game and don't pay uh, all that much attention to the Niners, you're like, who the hell is that? And why is he here with all these really good quarter, uh, really good cornerbacks? Um, and I think it, it's uh, it's a great thing for him to be around those guys and get a chance to learn. And, you know, it's an offseason thing. It may not matter. Solomon Thomas worked with Demarcus Ware last year and. That Adrian Colbert worked in. with Earl Thomas this offseason as well. Yeah, so you see these things happen quite a bit in the offseason. It's not always a big deal, but uh, it obviously can't hurt. Here's the important part, I thought, of that article because Robert Klemko asked Sherman, hey, why, why did you bring or invite someone like Akella Witherspoon, who's a little bit like you know one of these things is not like the other? And, and Sherman's quote was really important. He said, I quote, I invited him because I thought he could hold his own. I think from being around him, working with him, working out with him, watching him in OTAs and minicamp, I knew he could keep up with the workflow. I knew he would look the part. I knew, drill-wise, he wouldn't be overwhelmed. His footwork is beautiful and technical. I knew that in terms of demeanor and just being able to just walk around and not be starstruck by these guys, he'd be fine. I think he belongs with these guys, and people will figure that out in a few months, end quote. That's pretty lofty praise. Like, I, I don't think Richard Sherman's yeah. the kind of guy who just showers someone with undeserved praise. Um, not, a, not a track record of, I don't know, say, like Von Miller calling certain tackles the best right tackle in football. Sure. Or, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I just keep thinking of uh, Michael Crabtree at this point and like an alternate universe in which <laughs> Sherman is like, you know, Crabtree's a pretty good receiver, you know, but I made a good play on the ball and, you know, everything uh, to Crabtree, he did his best, but uh, we're moving on to the Super Bowl. Next question. <laughs> that, that's, not, that's not Richard Sherman's way. And, and what's great is that now he is, he's our asshole, and, and, I'm glad that he's, yeah, and, and I'm glad that he's fighting uh, for our players because I think this is a hell of an opportunity. And I think the part that I'm, that I'm hyper-focusing on, because this was a narrative that uh, Akella Witherspoon earned even before Richard Sherman, and that was that he had really good feet. And so to see someone like Richard Sherman say, 
yes, his footwork is beautiful and technical. I think that's the kind that that's the kind of comment that you take from someone who knows what he's talking about, from someone who doesn't just heap unwarranted praise on someone, and you think to yourself, okay, maybe that that kind of mini breakout year that he had isn't just a flash in the pan. Maybe he can sustain that. And that bodes really, really well for the 49ers defense. Definitely. I think that's like the most exciting thing, right? I remember when we talked about Witherspoon, he was obviously, uh, I mean, you will find no bigger Akello Witherspoon fans than, than, than we are. But uh, I remember when we were in the post-draft episodes and talking about his, his footwork and kind of how well he moved for a player his size, right? He's like, what, 6'3", got those really long arms, kind of a lanky guy. And you don't often see players with that sort of build move with is fluid and, and, and see kind of the footwork. And we talked about like soccer background, right? How it makes sense, how he's got kind of some coordination there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to keep going, he's but got, I realized it wasn't going to be. Uh, he's got the coordination there with his feet that you just don't, again, see from players, his size. And I think that's the thing that can potentially separate him because often you see guys, you know, and it's guys in this type of scheme where, they can play press and they can get up and be physical and, and they can maybe run with you in a straight line, but they don't necessarily have the agility, the lateral quickness to be able to move with guys and match guys on those underneath and, and kind of intermediate routes. And I think that's where Witherspoon can potentially be very good. Obviously, he's got work to do. You know, last year certainly wasn't perfect, but it was very encouraging. I think you look at his athletic traits uh, and the thing, things he brings to the table there. Uh, and it all points to him having, you know, potentially a monster kind of breakout year and, and really establishing himself as not only the best cornerback on this team, um, but potentially, you know, uh, one of the better in, in football. So overall, I think it bodes well for the defense. If if Colbert can have a if Colbert can continue to play at the at the level at which he finished out last year and Sherman gets to maybe if he doesn't get back to peak Sherman, but just gets back to like almost Sherman. And Witherspoon continues his his ascension. This the back half of this defense is going to be something else, uh, yeah. and that's and that's really really exciting. I mean, I think that's one of the big things, right? With uh, pass coverage was such a problem last year, and it was probably the biggest weak spot of this entire team. And they have so many now intriguing players, but they all have these little question marks, right? And so I think that's going to be one of the most interesting things, you know, as we go through training camp, go through the preseason, and finally get to some real football, you know, come September here, like. That's probably the thing. I mean, I know Garoppolo's going to to obviously get a lot of headlines and and, and we want to know whether he's going to be able to actually sustain his play. But beyond that, it, it's really how kind of that pass coverage unit comes together, how uh, you know, guys like Witherspoon, Colbert, the young players are able to step up and continue their development, how they integrate players like Tavarius Moore, um, where Jimmy Reed lands, you know, all of these things. They they've added a lot of pieces there. They've they've uh, you know, uh, put a lot of resources to fixing this problem. Um, but you know how it all plays out is going to be, I think very interesting. Only other story in 49er land is of course, recent Jimmy GQ, the savior, Jesus himself, uh, apparently took a porn star on a date. Uh, he took Kiara Mia out on a date and honestly live your best life, dude. Let's do it. Yeah. Th- <laughs> uh, it's hilarious that people want to make this out to be a bad story. Like, I mean, who cares? Yeah. You know, they're, they're adults. They can make their own decisions. You're you telling me that. Do two, you, man? I think the, uh, I think my brother-in-law texted me and he's like, man, he literally doesn't care about outside perception because he's like, he's, he's not trying to hide it, which I think it would be worse if you were trying to hide it. Yeah. I think it would be worse if he was a guy who's like, oh no, can't be seen with a porn star. Can't do that. 
franchise he, quarterback here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, who has Instagram videos of him jumping over logs. Did you see that? Yeah. Like, I, I just kept thinking <laughs> about the poor dude who had to set that up. Like, what poor schmuck has to set up all those goddamn Lincoln logs just to have the quarterback jump over them? And then at the end of the day, he's going to be like, all right, I got to clean all these up. Like, where do those go? I don't know, man. Looking at you, quality control coach. <laughs> Bob, yeah. Bobby Slowick, I'm, I'm sorry, man. If that was you. Ugh. All right, so we've got another episode of Smart Football Month, and this will be three of four. And this week, we're going to have PFF George. Uh, you'll understand why I'm not saying his last name here in a minute, but he is a data scientist for, for Pro Football Focus. And we thought it would be really interesting and really kind of good for just the rest of the year to talk about and go in depth in the statistics that we often reference and often use because there are times where we'll throw these stats out and just kind of make mention to them. But there's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot of thought that goes into why that stat is used. And there's a lot of really important, really math that goes into deriving the statistics that we think help prove points or that help explain what happened or in some cases predict what happened. So we thought we'd get no one else than the math guy who puts them all together for PFF to come on, explain them, talk about how they're important in the game of football, and then have a little fun with how they apply to the 49ers. Absolutely. I think this is uh, you know, one of the reasons we look to move things from scheme month to smart football month, right? Because it's recognizing that there's more to it than just the film and just what teams are doing schematically, right? We want to be able to talk about the data. And, it, and a lot of times, I think the best analysis is, is sort of mashing those two together, right? Being able to match up what you see on film and back that up with, with data. So having... Um, you know, some of the best data tools and metrics that are out there, uh, you know, moving beyond the basic box score stuff, understanding how all that works and how you can apply it, I think is uh, very valuable to learning about this game. And so I think George is going to be able to talk about, you know, a number of different things out there and help us really kind of understand some of those more complex ideas. All right, so let's get to it. Let's get to an interview with George from Pro Football Focus. And now we are hashtag blessed with none other than the... Uh, I guess, primary cleric of the Church of Jimmy Jesus. One Mr. George Chahuri. Yep, couldn't even do it. Couldn't even do it that time. That was that's prob- not too terrible. That's not too terrible. That's probably that's like not awful. I think that's better than you know your pre-recording attempts. Oh I man, mean, I don't know. It was terrible. And that was with some practice. Uh, but George well, is a data scientist for Pro Football Focus. He's the host of the PFF Forecast. He's done lots of math in his life. Even taught it to little kids. Uh, it's, <laughs> and of course you know, he's a fellow Niners I, fan. So welcome to the show. Thank you guys. I was going to say, if there was ever a time to forgive the transgressions of others and you messing up, my name is certainly one today of all days is a good day to do it. So I absolve you. It is, you know, the, the, the stars are aligning as you say, because, uh, you know, top news, we've got porn stars in the mix and, and what other starting quarterback is going to bless you with talking about porn stars legitimately on a podcast. You know, everyone wants to to rush to judgment. People that uh, have failed to take the large, uh, I guess it's called the log, the large log out of their own eye, you know, before casting judgment on poor Jimmy G. So um, I think it's it's very kind of him to show us that compassion for all is important. So, George, let's talk a little bit about what the hell you do for Pro Football Focus, because data scientist sounds uh, like a made up <laughs> title. It sounds like it sounds like when someone's like CEO of a company, but they're like one employee for the company and it's them. Uh, so yeah. what, what do you do for, for Pro Football Focus? I do a lot of things, actually. And data scientist was not one of the original things that I did. But um, 
I, I kind of got into the company through a bunch of different avenues. I knew that I had, you know, this skill and it was something that I was really passionate about doing. And so once I finally got some, uh, you know, earned some respect in the company, I was like, Hey, by the way, I have this, you know, math degree. It's kind of my specialty. And so, um, basically Eric, uh, eager and I have sort of teamed up, um, to, you know, create this podcast and do a lot of math and, you know, kind of explore some things for, uh, you know, with all the data that we have. So I, I think we sort of started out with the ambition of picking games correctly, and that's grown into a bunch of different things, um, you know, predictive stuff in terms of players and teams and, uh, you know, draft stuff and all those different, uh, different kinds of things that luckily, you know, with gambling becoming now, a, you know, a big, bigger piece of football has been a cool thing and our roles expanded. So uh, it's been pretty fun. So done a lot of work recently. So for those of you who are, are new, this is going to be Smart Football Month, and so we're trying to get everyone to be a little bit smarter about how they watch the game of football. And this is going to be the math episode where we're going to talk a lot about statistics. We've used statistics. We've used some of the stats that we've talked about or that we will talk about this week over the course of the past, the past few weeks. But sometimes they can get pretty heady. So the, the goal over the, the next hour or so is to kind of demystify some of these statistics, see how they can get how they are applied, how they should be applied and hopefully get a better understanding as as you use these stats and read about them over the course of the year. And we wanted to start with expected points um, and, and EPA. So you use this measure a lot when you're looking at decision-making specifically, and especially the outcome of on-field decisions. So how the hell do you calculate expected points, and why would you say it's a good measure to judge outcomes on the football field? Yeah, both good questions. Um, the, the way that you calculate it basically is it's actually fairly simple in terms of the different things that go into it. Um, you know, the basic idea is saying, okay, based on where I am on the field, uh, you know, the down distance yards to go, you know, those very basic things, how many points do I expect to score on the next scoring play? So it can be positive, meaning you expect to score next. And generally when you're on offense, you expect to score next unless you're really backed up. Um, and if it's negative, that means you're in a really disadvantage, uh, disadvantageous situation and you expect the defense to score next. And so basically you, you use, you know, some mathematical, some machine learning techniques to learn the expected points for your given situation. And, uh, what, what, that allows you to do is compare on a, on a certain play, your expected points on that play, and then your expected points after that play. And that basically tells you, Hey, did you add to your expected, uh, scoring point total? And if you did, that's good. And if you didn't, that's bad. Basically, if your expected points added on a play is positive, you've increased your chances of scoring. And if it's negative, you've decreased them. So what's cool about that is it, it adds context to situations. So, um, you know, not all four yard gains are created equal, right? If you gain four yards on third and three, that really helps your, you know, the prospects of scoring on that drive. And so you'll get positive expected points, but if you gain four yards on third and 10, you know, not that big of a deal. Um, similarly with things like short yardage touchdowns, right? If it's first and one at the goal line, um, it's not that impressive that you're running back you know, dove in and scored a touchdown. Um, and so the expected points will take all that into context and it allows you to compare, you know, kind of on a more level playing field, how good offenses are, how good defenses are in different situations and coaching decisions as well. Don't besmirch, uh, Jerome Bettis. Don't, don't <laughs> minimize his one yard touchdowns. God. Don't do that. This is not the show for that. And I'm just kidding. Uh, so the, the thing about expected points though, that sometimes can get confusing is that it's, it's usually measured not in, in, the increments in which you can score in football, right? So you think, okay, how many points am I going to score on the next play? Usually that's, you know, three, 
you know, two, three, six, or maybe seven, right? Or one, if it's an extra point. So how do you get to like two expected points or 2.4, 2.5, those kind of non, you know, scoring numbers that, you know, also let you measure what is, is successful or what's not successful? Yeah, I think that's a lot of people's pushback, right? It's like they're so used to watching and thinking about football in, you know, these very concrete ways and, and ways of measuring points and whatnot. Um, and so it can seem like witchcraft. Uh, the way that you get numbers less than, say, seven or three, for example, is that um, there are many different times, uh, there are many different outcomes that are possible, right? And an expectation is sort of, it's basically a way of thinking of an average, right? Um, and so in the way that we calculate it, what we're actually calculating is your probability of scoring seven, your probability of scoring three, your probability of scoring negative seven. In other words, the defense scores a touchdown on the next scoring uh, play. Um, and we take those probabilities, multiply them by their those outcomes, and it gives you basically an expectation, expected value for your points. So because all of those different things can happen with varying probabilities depending on where you are. That's how you end up with, you know, 2.5 expected points or, um, you know, maybe you're really close to the goal line and it's first down. And so your expected point total might be very close to seven. It's not quite seven because there are times where you'll get stuffed, you'll kick a field goal, you'll throw a pick six. All of those things that, you know, have happened throughout the history of football get woven into that expectation. So is there a way to, to kind of bring it? So first of all, I, I love the idea of expected points. I didn't ask that question to be like, oh, math is stupid. Um, <laughs> it, it was more just to, to help understand because for a while this was confusing for me and I didn't really understand how expected points worked and, and especially when you take kind of game situation into account. And when you, know, you said not all yards are created equal and, and we're firm believers of that, right? We were early on the DVOA train, love that thing just in general because it, it values yards differently based on, on what the outcome expectation is. But when you're talking about end of games and, and expected points or even EPA, you're, you're sometimes going to see teams that sacrifice points to run the ball to run out the clock. And so in those cases, you know, maybe you would say that the, the decision that gains you more expected points when you're thinking of trading off clock is not necessarily the positive way to go. Um, is that something that's factored in? Is that accounted for? Or does it just not matter because you should always be playing to win the game and, and have your foot on, on the gas pedal? Well, I think you're right. Um, it, certainly the way to measure end of game situations is with win probability. That, there's no doubt about that. And when we calculate expected points, we actually only train with the data that we use to actually learn the expectation for points. We take out those sort of end of game, end of half situations because in those situations, right, things are a little bit different. Um, and so we want a very clean, just based on where you are on the field, you're down in distance, right? This is the expected points. And then we can work in win probability. And so I think there's, I think it's like sort of a meeting halfway because the idea that you want to burn clock, it, sure you do, but you also want to score points and you burn clock by moving down the field. And if you think, you know, continuously running the ball because you're going to milk, you know, 20 more seconds off the clock, is that helpful? Well, relative to you scoring again, it's not. Um, so I think there is a little bit of a halfway meeting point. And when we consider coaching decisions and, and we've actually worked a lot this summer on building a model for valuing coaching, um, that we cluster like kind of things into two groups, 
you know, kind of play calling things that happen, you know, many times over the game and those big decisions that happen, say, at the end of the fourth quarter. And for those, we use win probability as opposed to expected points. So you're dead on. Um, What I think is interesting is that there are probably more often than you would think it's advantageous to continue trying to score points than just running out the clock. I mean, that's not a crazy idea. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not, it's, right? It's crazy. Like, yeah. who would think that scoring more points turns out to be beneficial? Um, so I think my, my question, right, is we, we know that expected points can be very useful in terms of, uh, you know, a lot of things we talked about, right? The decision-making and um, helping teams kind of figure out what they should be doing in order to maximize the points that they're putting on the board. Um, are, are there any sort of, like, blind spots, right? Are there any anything that that it really misses. I mean, we kind of touched, I guess, maybe those late game situations is one, but, but is there an area where you think that maybe EPA kind of misses it or, or could be improved in some way? Yeah, I think there's a couple things. Actually, I was just having a conversation with someone about the Atlanta Falcons and the Atlanta Falcons defensively rank 20th in EPA allowed per play. Um, and there's a couple things there. First off, they played an incredibly tough schedule. And so EPA is not opponent adjusting anything. Um, and because of that, right, there's a difference between giving up a bunch of good plays to Drew Brees, you know, if you face him twice a year compared to, you know, uh, CJ uh, Beathard, right? If you face him twice a year. Whoa, whoa, um, whoa, whoa. I thought you I said know. you were a Niners fan. Why you got to go there? You could have had your pick of any quarterback. We could, I mean, Blake Bortles was there for the taking. You went straight for the heart, man. Straight for the worst one. I was trying to go one, as low to as yeah. low down the totem pole as possible. <laughs> he's he's not very good, is he? I mean, he wasn't he wasn't great. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> Blaine Gabbert, Drew Stan, they might have been worse. I think uh, we'll talk about clustering here a little bit later. They were bottom of the barrel, but the point remains, right? That like there's a huge difference between a bottom of the barrel quarterback and facing a really strong schedule, and so that is definitely one blind spot, and and. In the Falcons' case, they graded really, really well, and we have a, a way of ranking defenses that takes PFF grades and opponent adjusts them, and we use that to rank defenses, and Atlanta's a top-five defense in that ranking. And so what's interesting about that, and at least from a gambling perspective and also from a valuing teams going forward perspective, that gives us a little bit of an edge, I think, because I think common perception will fall more in line with EPA, you know, points allowed, yardage allowed, some of those metrics that aren't great, but will more highly correlate with with EPA. And so there are some of those blind spots like opponent adjusting and how well did a player actually do his job um, on that play and not just how well did you know, the other team do that allow you to kind of get a finer look at how really good or bad teams are. Now, we've been using expected points and expected points added a little interchangeably, and and they're not exactly the same thing, right? You've got expected points, which is the outcome of a single decision, but then expected points added is kind of is what exactly because it takes something else into account. Yeah, so it it is it is confusing. Um, So here's how I put it. So on a, a given play, you have the expected points at that moment. Right. And that's just where you are before you snap the ball, given your spot on the field, you're down in distance. This is your expected points that you expect to score on the next scoring play. Okay. So that then when the play happens, you can either improve that value, right? Or you can diminish it. And the expected points that you add are that delta, right? That difference that that play that you run actually causes on your expected points. So when you line up the next time, you have a new expected points value that has changed by some amount. 
And obviously, whether the play was successful or not will tell you whether that increased or decreased. In other words, whether your expected points added was positive or negative. All right. Did, so that, we'll, yeah, did I clear that up? Makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense, I think. And and we'll we'll try and do our best to be to be <laughs> clear and specific when we're using expected points and, and EPA from here on out. One of the things that we that we noticed that you guys have done on the PFF forecast and in the articles on on Pro Football Focus is you've started to identify expected points added by position. How does that work? How does isolating a specific player based on the expected points they add work independent of the rest of the team or the EPA for that situation? So when you're talking about EPA, um, you got to be careful because the, the isolation of a particular player is, is the hard part. Um, and deciding how much of that particular play is caused by one player is, you know, in certain situations harder than, you know, than just allotting it all to that one player. So we try to be careful in those situations. Um, the way that we do it for uh, wins above replacement, which um, takes into account, you know, so, sort of how how well a player did his job is that we use PFF grades to, to make that a more kind of smooth adjustment. But um, generally, when I talk about EPA per play, I try to make it situational and use it more as a team thing. Um, when it comes to quarterbacks, the quarterback is so important that I feel a little more comfortable attributing, you know, more of that to the quarterback, if you will. But, um, you know, for example, we talk about, uh, EPA when targeting the slot. So that's, you know, a specific game situation thing. Um, I'm not going to necessarily attribute it all to the receiving core or to the quarterback, although quarterback probably deserves a good bit of it. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a nice way to sort of segment those situations out less. So I think to isolate necessarily how good or how bad a player is. All right. That makes a ton of sense is, is you're isolating the situation, not necessarily the player, but there is a player that's there. So they're kind of embroiled in the whole, in the whole thing. And so I think here it makes sense. I mean, you mentioned, so you mentioned war and I think it makes sense to kind of bring that into the conversation now. So explain what exactly war is and then how does it sort of complement EPA and, and maybe some other metrics or how does it even differ from say like PFF overall grades? Yeah, great question. So WAR is stands for wins above replacement. It's a common, you know, baseball thing. Obviously, um, basketball has like 900 different versions of it that uh, you know people come up with. And the goal is basically to say, okay, if you take a replacement player and you put them in instead of this guy, you know, what does that cost your team? Um, and in football, it's tough because not all facets are created equal. Um, and so the way that I describe war, at least the, the way that we do uh, war, PFF war, is the, the PFF grades tell you how well a player performed. Um, they do a very good job. We've tested them all mathematically. They're very stable. Uh, they do a great job of predicting things. But they don't aim to tell you what's more valuable. Right. So Aaron Donald was our highest graded player last year, but no one's going to say you should trade Aaron Donald for Tom Brady or Jimmy G for that matter. Right. Because what they do is of different value. And so what we do with war is we take the, the grading of the player by facet and we say, look, that certain things are worth more. We know that mathematically by trying to predict how your how many points your team scores, how many wins your, your team ends up winning in a season. And we use that to translate PFF grades into actual wins by re-simulating seasons uh, with a player in, with a player out. And they're um, production, their PFF grading production on, in certain facets will then be 
weighed more or less, right? So if you simulate a season with Tom Brady and then take him out, that reduction in passing is going to cost you a lot of wins. And so that's your wins above replacement. Um, and then we do that for all the different players and all the teams. And, you know, the numbers that come out, the difference between your wins with a replacement player and then with that player are essentially your, your war. So for, for the replacement player, the anonymous silhouette, the, I'm imagining a Madden <laughs> cutout in my head. It's just like, you know, create a player. Yeah, create a player. Right. Uh, for, for that person, are, is that year by year or are you looking at like an era aggregate or how are you how are you quantifying the replacement? Yeah, it's, that is a great question because so much depends on that. And people immediately hear replacement and think average. I don't know why, but that's just what people do. And there's a distinct <laughs> difference, right? Because the average quarterback last year and who you'd pick up off the street to replace them are dramatically different things, right? Um, and so what we do for replacement level is we take um, the grade, the aggregate grade by position or the average grade by position for um, basically what would amount to a 3 and 13 or 4 and, and 12 team. And that player stands in for the replacement level player. And the reason we have to do that is that it, you essentially want to mimic what it would be signing a guy off the street. The problem is, is that you don't have a lot of data on guys that you sign off the street. And so in order to not have sort of that small sample size problem, um, that's how we deal with it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So here's a good example for you. The, uh, the, I'll, I'll let you guess here. Who do you think the least valuable quarterback was in terms of war last year? Oh, Jesus. Is there like a snap threshold? I mean, CJ Beathard. Right. Yeah, because I, I was going to say, if, if we're talking about someone who started more than like eight or nine games, um, uh, you're that, you're that, missing you're missing a a a very notable name who played more than C.J. Beathard and whose team did not do as well. Eli Manning. <laughs> that, he was bad, but not he was. No, yeah, no, this that's, guy that's was too harsh. He it's like who played quarterback was, with the Browns? He was a walking turnover worthy play. Oh, is it Kaiser? It's Kaiser. Yeah, so, Kaiser was. Tells you, who yeah, played quarterback for the Kaiser Browns? Was really bad. That's usually year. the answer to the the crappiest at the quarterback position over the past twenty years is who played for the Browns. Exactly, but but here's what you'll find interesting about that is that so he played a very valuable position, right? So the quarterback position, even if you're an average quarterback, is going to help your team a little bit. He was so bad that he was negative two point. I think it was negative two point nine wins in this case, below replacement. So he was 2.9 wins below replacement. So if you think about it, if you just plug in another random guy who just performs, you know, at replacement level. An average quarterback on a 4-12 and 12 team. You'd expect to win. And you think about the Browns. Like, you never expect a team to go and you know, over, right? I mean, that's ridiculous. And you think about how kind of poorly Kaiser played. And, you know, I, certainly not all his fault, right? Um, but, uh, you know, if you watch their season... There's like, you know, five or six plays. You're like, man, just don't make that boneheaded play and you win this game. I think the Jaguars game, you know, kind of stick stands out to me. They made a comedy of errors there. Um, and, uh, you know, it's and so that's a situation where if you play poorly at a really valuable position like quarterback, you're going to cost your team a lot of wins. And I think that one makes a ton of sense. Well, we're so we're talking about valuable positions, and I think it's it's really interesting to talk about the different value of positions because this offseason we did a lot of with with the Niners roster and a lot with kind of figuring where the the areas of need were 
And obviously, you're going to put a higher priority on positions that matter the most. So obviously, quarterback is up there, and it's number one by a pretty wide margin, I'd imagine. But what are the other positions of value on a football team that you want to make sure that you have a good player at? Uh, and then we'll get to the ones that are least valuable, like maybe defensive tackle. <laughs> I don't know, fullback? It, <laughs> I'm gonna throw, throw there. a fullback out there. Need a strong fullback. Um, offensive so the, weapon, David. Offensive weapon. The uh, Yeah, that's a good... Uh, uh, Le'Veon Bell um, is an interesting guy to talk about. But I, I think we'll, we can touch on the running back position in the least valuable portion here. Um, the way that we talk about value is we look at it in terms of facet first. So you know your ultimate goal is to win games. And so what we look at is the value, the predictive value, or the, you know, in a layman's term, sort of the correlation between different facets and you know your wins in a season. So obviously how well you perform as a passer or you're passing, you know, as a team, and that's usually down to the quarterback, um, is the most predictive thing in terms of wins. Um, so if you're trying to predict the total wins in a season, that's your number one thing. Yeah. That's the variable that's most important. And I think and sorry, the, real quick, I think it's, it's probably important. One thing I do remember from math, uh, is the difference between predictive stats and kind of explanatory stats, right? Where predictive stats will tell you what's going to happen in the future and explanatory stats will just explain what happened, but not necessarily be predictive. And I think it's an important distinction here because there are lots of stats that just tell you or explain what happened and they are not stable year to year and don't tell you what's going to happen next year where there are other stats that kind of will. Exactly. So, um, you know, a good example of that is like kneel downs, right? Like kneel downs are super descriptive of what happened, you know, but they're not going to help you predict going forward because you have no idea, you know, all the other things that actually go into the game becoming into a situation where you have to kneel the ball down, uh, kneel down to, you know, close out the game. Um, but it th- when we try to predict things, right, the strength and the value of each variable is going to go down because there's, you're predicting unknowns. Um, so there's a difference between finding a correlation and then basically holding out a set of data and trying to predict, um, the, you know, the outcomes of those, you know, games or seasons or whatnot. Um, Another a good example of this is passer uh, passer rating or passer performance under pressure versus when clean. So it's you know pass rating under pressure or grade under pressure or yards per attempt under pressure very unstable week to week season to season whatever it is, um, and that kind of makes sense. It's a smaller sample size. You've got a bunch of things going on, um, you know that that make each pressure situation a little bit different. Whereas when you're kept clean, that happens more frequently. It's more of a controlled situation. And so for quarterbacks and for teams, it's far more stable week to week and season to season. But um, getting back to the whole like what's valuable and what's not thing, um, when we look at the predictive power of each uh, facet, passing is first, receiving and coverage then come in second. And it's really not even close. The difference between the two is that receiving and passing are so highly correlated, as you might imagine. And so much of that value in receiving actually gets dumped into the quarterback's bucket. Um, and so that the next two things that that show up actually boil down to one thing, which is pass coverage. So passing is first. Pass coverage comes in second. And pass coverage actually does a very good job of explaining uh, the number of wins that you have in a season. Um, and then behind that would be uh, pass rush. Um, and then things like pass blocking, um, you know, receiving because it's, it's tied into passing. And then at the bottom of the barrel, you've got things like rushing and run blocking and run defense and stuff like that. 
Right. I mean, I think it's it's something that we've talked about, you know, I think at length uh, over the course of this offseason about how running just simply isn't all that valuable, right? It's not something that you should be doing all that much. Um, I, I think you'd mentioned that running the ball actually has a negative EPA on average. Uh, and, and so I think one of the things, this is something we talked about a couple weeks ago, right? When talking about Kyle Shanahan and, and kind of how he likes to throw from run personnel and, and we kind of got that into, well, how much should you actually be running the football in general, right? I don't know that uh, as much as we like to joke about it, I don't know that anybody's necessarily saying that that a team should throw the ball 100% of the time. Where where do you kind of think that line is, right? Where is kind of that maximum efficiency where teams are throwing the ball enough but not doing it so much that then they start to see kind of diminishing returns? Yeah, no, you make a great point, right? People, it, this happens with like, um, yeah, I guess analytics Twitter is a good example, but people just go off the rails, right? They assume everything is binary, zero or one, and that you have to know everything. And there are things that we just don't know, right? And because of the fact that teams will never go 100% pass uh, for various reasons, we're not going to see that. Um, and so because you sort of accept, look, I'm going to have to run the ball because, you know, maybe it'll just tire my players out too much if I pass all the time, or, um, you know, I'm worried about keeping the defense quote honest or whatever. Um, although I don't necessarily believe in that, the, the, where I sort of stand on it is if you assume, look, I just have to run, say to keep my players rested, keep my quarterback, you know, rested during the game. I want to make sure I do it in the most advantageous situation. Right. So that's where sort of scouting and sort of all those things come into play. Who are, you know, where are the weak spots in the defense? Um, you know, who are the guys that I want to make sure that I run at? What sort of, you know, different personnels can I get them in where it makes it more advantageous than not? And then pick my spots there. And I think having guys that are very diverse helps you do that. Right. If you have running backs who can catch the ball, um, that, that allows you to be multiple. Um, and I, so I think that's a valuable way to, to attack it. And then I think just not doing it in situations where it's really bad for you. So a great example is second and long second and long runs are the very, you know, bottom of hell, the very depths of hell is, is running on second and long. So if you just eliminate doing that, right. And you say, okay, I'm just not going to kill myself there. You can make huge gains. Um, and you know, I think one of the ways that I like to put it is people sort of have this, uh, mystical idea that like four yards, a carry is amazing. But if you just, if you gain four yards on first down, like you actually shouldn't be that stoked because (laughs) you're not really increasing your chances of scoring on that, on that drive. Um, and I think hearing that sort of puts it in perspective because generally for running the ball, that's considered a, you know, a win, I guess, if you will. Yeah. But um, a, a crappy pass is going to get you like five yards. <laughs> it's, it's a loss. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's why, uh, you know, talking about Shanahan, he's in our coaching metrics, he has been, uh, I think he's second or third in terms of the, uh, EPA above what um, we'd expect for his team um, has gotten on on offense. And what the way that I would put that is basically what we do is we say a team that has this level of PFF grade, we expect them to do this well. And he has added um, a, quite a bit to what we would expect out of his teams. And one of the things that he has done, and Matt Ryan epitomized this, is that they have just torched teams out of heavy sets. So what I'm talking about is like two or yep. fewer wide receivers. Um, 
I mean, Matt Ryan just in 2016, I mean, they eviscerated teams. They ran it. They ran, uh, sorry, they passed out of those sets more than any other team. Um, and they just killed people. He had like 140 passer rating out of heavy sets. And that has continued in, in San Francisco. And it's one of the reasons that I think, you know, Shanahan is just at the cutting edge sort of, of figuring out what are, how can I make, you know, the players basically the best versions of themselves they can possibly be. And that's, I guess that's the argument for use check, right? And, and this is because I, I, I think that it was a ridiculous contract, and I think you. Oh, could there's find- no justify. Like there's, <laughs> Usechek can be a useful player and, and can actually Correct. have you know some value in in Shanahan's offense and all that, and it can still be like the worst contract. Well, football, here's here's the argument. Here's future. the argument I get more often than not when when I talk about Usechek on Twitter, and then immediately as soon as I mention that's your first mistake. Oh my that's god, the problem. <laughs> well, no, I, like first of all, I'm talking about OJ. I'm just talking about Juice. Yeah. I, they, like they don't know why. I, I could be talking about true crime. They don't know. Uh, but as soon as I mention use check and fullback in his contract, because Barnwell had an article about it, you know, it's like the use check contract article where it's like which ones yeah. are outsized. Everyone's like, oh, but he's the best pass catching fullback in football. And if this were a tight end salary, no one would blink an eye. It's like, well, first of all, I, I, I would not necessarily agree with the premise that he's the best pass catching fullback in football. And even if he was, the delta between him and the guy who makes 120% less than he does is not that great. It's not that big. And so why not just save that money, get, get like a maybe the third best receiving fullback in football and take that money and put it somewhere else? Um, you know, so I would disagree. And then on top of that, it's like, and he's not a tight end. You don't play him like a tight end. So let's not pretend think- that he is. I think that's the key, right? It's like recognizing you're talking about Le'Veon Bell and this like offensive weapon thing. And what you've got to realize is that there's, you know, running backs in particular and fullbacks certainly fall into this, that throwing them the ball, they may be good at catching the ball. They may be good after the catch. They're catching the ball on average, maybe at the line of scrimmage, maybe a yard past the line of scrimmage. You've got to do, you've got to work miracles. You've got to part the Red Sea just to make that play a valuable play and you're not going to be able to do that off, that off. So, uh, you know, it's no like knock on those guys. It's just a, uh, basically a function of what they're asked to do. So if you lined Le'Veon Bell up in the slot on every play and targeted him, you know, eight yards down the field, yeah, he'd probably be more valuable if, you know, if you assume that his skills translate, but you're not doing that. And I don't think we're going to see use check lining up at tight end, you know, running the seam and, you know, playing, you know, being mini Gronk out there. Right. Although you never know. Oh, man. I, let, let's talk about something a little bit more fun than fullbacks, because that's already like starting <laughs> to make my head hurt. Let's let's start talking about some quarterback play. Right. Um, one of the things that I think uh, is is incredibly useful and and. Uh, was really great part of the the PFF QB annual is the the idea of QB clustering, right? Because I think sometimes you know people go crazy about whether whether it's PFF grade or it could be QBR or pass rating or whatever the metric is, right? Go insane about like oh he's number seven and he should be number six, right? And it's just like it doesn't make sense. Like a lot of that stuff ultimately doesn't matter. I think it's more useful to look at these players uh, in sort of tiers or groups of similar type of players. So. Explain kind of what you're doing with QB clustering and and how that is use a useful way to kind of group these quarterbacks. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, right? It's it's so counterproductive to argue two versus three, top five versus top seven. Um, it's you can learn a lot more, I think, by looking at similarities amongst groups of quarterbacks than nitpicking about you know little things here and there that make them different. And so, why are you that, trying to rob the sports world of the thing that fuels it? <laughs> 
<laughs> if it were not for if it, if it were not for uh, lists, I don't know that the sports media world would exist. I mean, that's the thing, right? I'm not like, yeah, arguments are fun. I'll, I'll sit here and, you know, and argue, you know, MJ versus LeBron all day, but taking myself seriously and doing that is a totally different matter. I'm not, not going to do that. Um, and I won't do the same with quarterbacks. And so that mindset, you know, looking at things that are similar is basically the beginning of this process. And so there's a lot of different ways that you can do this. A, a common mathematical way of doing it is basically finding like your most similar comparison. It's called uh, nearest neighbor. And um, this is sort of a different way of, or a slightly different take on that, which is clustering analysis. And what that does is you can throw out, say, you've got 10 different variables that you want to consider. So for every quarterback, you have their you know, value for one of those 10 different variables. And you know, mathematically, you can figure out uh, what are the best sort of schemas for clustering those guys to, you know, basically, uh, basically make them as closely knit as you can without, uh, you know, to kind of destroying the whole thing. And so that's what clustering is. And once you run the algorithm, you get these groups of, of players and you can analyze those groups based on their kind of mean characteristics. So you can say, okay, let's look at this cluster. What do we know about it? Well, if I average it's, you know, the PFF grade in that cluster, that's the highest graded cluster. And so that actually ends up being cluster one or what we call tier one guys. And those are the Tom Brady's, uh, Drew Brees falls into that group more often than not, although he wasn't last year. Matt Ryan is in that group. Russell Wilson, Jimmy G didn't qualify for the drop back threshold, but he would have been in there if we lowered it. Just how, how just far saying. away was he from the drop back threshold? I want to know what his delta, because if he was like, 200 throws away that's one thing if he was like 11 throws away that's another <laughs> yeah it was closer to 11 than 200 um i wasn't you know i, I fought long and hard for it uh ultimately it, what it came down to is that we had sort of published this was going to be the threshold and we we're like wow we feel sort of bad making just just making it that much different for one guy um i feel like we it, have a kgb agent on the inside we've got <laughs> we've got an advocate keep fighting the good fight it's really, it's really just so I can be the person to bring the good news to light when people are like, I don't see Jimmy G on there. And I can be like, well, I've got good news for you. He's, <laughs> he's in the top group. I'm going to need fairness, you holding the tablets. In, in, fa- <laughs> in <laughs> fairness, his sample size was small. And I think, yeah. um, you know, I think the, the signs were obviously great, but um, I'd rather err on the side of caution and be pleasantly surprised next year than like mortally disappointed. Um, but uh, the, the clustering does does a great job of putting those guys into those similar groups. So um, cluster three, for example, cluster two and three are interesting because they basically have the same mean grade, the same average grade. And a great example of this is like the Sam Bradford versus Jameis Winston comparison. They basically have the same PFF grade, but they're such different players that it doesn't really make sense to you know even really compare them right? Um, Jameis Winston's very volatile, high big time throw rate, makes a lot of great throws, makes a ton of stupid plays as well, right? Very high turnover where they play rate. And so they fall into different clusters and we can see players that are similar to Jameis Winston. Deshaun Watson uh, is a great example of that. Uh, Guys that fall into cluster two that are very safe. Um, Drew Brees actually fell into that cluster last year, which I think more a function really of his supporting cast, not asking him to do a ton. But um, th- those are sort of the tier two guys, cluster two and cluster three. And then you basically move down into cluster four and five, which are guys that are tier three. They're not 
you know, super great. Um, guy like Kirk Cousins fell into cluster four last year. What I sort of make of that is he's kind of a supporting cast dependent guy. Um, whereas if you go to cluster one, I sort of view those as being the supporting cast doesn't matter, right? I'm going to put you on my back and I'm going to carry you type guy. Um, and it's just been a really, you know, kind of effective way for us to think about quarterbacks and look at their similarities. Um, you know, kind of, it, it's cool because, uh, when we're, we're talking about teams, we can look at a guy like Kirk Cousins, a guy like Alex Smith, we can say more about their similarities than sort of argue about their differences, which I think is constructive. Well, I think it makes a ton of sense because we've long hated the whole like one, two, three ranking, I think on, on our podcast and just in general, as it makes sense. I think that what, what clustering, at least in the way that y'all have defined it, it is helpful for me to understand is, is that styles matter. And I think that Jameis and, and, you know, Alex Smith or Safe or Sam Bradford are, are going to be one of the most instructive examples where it's like, look, there's not, you know, uh, you, you can value different things and you can rank them one, two or three and GMs have to do this all the time. But overall, when it comes to their play, there's there's buckets and, and there are buckets when it comes to players. And you've got to understand that, you know, in that bucket, things are kind of moving around. But the bucket helps you understand more about where they are than it does whether or not they're 11 or 12. Yep. Right. And seeing how they move from year to year is instructed too, right? Because like their supporting cast change too. And so we look at their supporting cast play and it can be like, hey, that explains a lot of it, right? This guy sucked because the rest of his team did too. Right. And I think knowing like that type of information, right, is, is far more useful, whether you're a, a fan and you kind of want to just know everything about this, this player and, and how the team needs to build around him, or if you're actually the team trying to build around this quarterback, right? Knowing where their strengths lie and, and whether they're a guy that's going to be able to carry you, whether they're a guy that needs kind of everything around them to be great and, uh, you know, what type of throws that they make well and, and all of those sort of facets, right? Splitting them up and, and kind of knowing what you have in that type of guy, I think, is really helpful from like a team building standpoint. So I think, yeah, again, the clustering makes a, lo- a lot of sense as, as a way to do that. Um, Jimmy G, cluster one, right, is is fantastic. So what is it, I guess, um, about the the data? What it, where where is it that makes you feel like Jimmy G is going to be able to continue that sort of cluster one type performance in this season and, and beyond? Yeah, so we talked about things that are stable versus not stable, and so when we're trying to pro- project forward, we want to look at the things that are stable, and um, the the number one place to look there is how well they perform from a clean pocket and. That's where that's where Jimmy really really shined. He was I think third uh, in clean pocket grade. I think he was also top three actually under pressure. So he was good regardless first of under the pressure. situation. Yeah, first under pressure. I'm gonna say I only I only remember this because I was just writing about it this morning. So and I only remember it because I worry that that's not sustainable. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and so the pressure probably isn't right. I you know like it, I wouldn't bet on him necessarily being top five again in in uh, play under pressure. But but if I he is, be, then holy shit. Well, but here's the here's the other thing. It, pressure happens less frequently, right? Like a guy like Big, you know, Big Ben, he's terrible under pressure, but he's under pressure less than anybody else. So in the aggregate, he comes out a top five quarterback. So you know, I, I think that's where you can sort of when you think about picking a guy like McGlinchey in the first round, it's like, well, I, you know, maybe I disagree with it, maybe I don't. But um, when you're thinking about getting a guy more clean pockets. Like that's really valuable. And that's why, because if you know what he is in clean pockets, more likely than not, that's going to continue. If you're banking on him being otherworldly under pressure, 
it's just not going to happen that often. Um, and so I think that's where the good news is. Another good thing about what Jimmy G has done is that he's avoided the turnover worthy play. Um, and that's another thing that tends to be more consistent from season to season. So he was fifth overall in, in avoiding turnover worthy plays that basically to sum that up, it's like any play that puts the ball at a really great risk of a turnover. So it could be a fumble. Uh, it could be, you know, a terrible throw. And even if it gets picked off or recovered, regardless, we grade it the same way. So, uh, basically by, by grading the actual process by which the play happened, that t- turns out to be far more consistent than things like interceptions, for example. Um, Another thing that I think is really great, we started this ball location tracking um, that passed uh, actually last year, and we did it for 2016 and 2017. Yeah, it's been phenomenal. And that stuff's it, so awesome. It's awesome. I think it's it's going to sort of revolutionize the way that we, um, you know, the way that we value quarterbacks in the NFL, but also like project them from college to pro. Um, it's awesome yeah. stuff. So yeah. uh, he, uh, Jimmy G, has been really good on you know, in terms of accuracy. He was third in overall accuracy percentage, which is you know something that's generally pretty stable. He was really good on throws with a step or more of separation, which we've also found to be pretty stable. So all those things have me, I think, you know, feeling pretty darn confident. That I think the one area. Uh, of concern is he didn't make a ton of the really high level throws, the big time throws. Yep. I think he was like 38th or 39th in that, uh, you know, in that facet. So, I mean, that'd be my one, you know, issue with what he did last year. The good news is that that's something that tends to be less stable. So, you know, I would expect that to, to change a little bit, uh, you know, next year. And then the other thing I was talking about this with the like tier one guys, like they elevate the play of their supporting cast think about you know the Niners supporting cast you know uh you know B BJ before Jimmy right um it, <laughs> in in it was, his current context that means something very different yes I that was not lost on me I yeah. think it, it it hit me right as I was saying the B and I was like ah I, I get it now um like they they were you know not exactly great and all of a sudden, you know, Jimmy steps in, you know, he, they lose Garcon, who's actually like their one bright spot, but all of a sudden these guys, you know, kind of come to life. And I think, you know, I think a lot of that is on Shanahan, obviously. I mean, the guy's a master, but, um, the elevation of supporting cast is something that I think was really impressive with, with Jimmy G and that's borne out by how successful the team was, uh, you know, when he was in there. All right, so a few more questions about the the 49ers season and look ahead before we get to the lightning round from the dark web. Uh, number one is what what was the a little nod there to the uh, the PFF forecast? But so when we talk about valuable positions on the field for the 49ers, who was the most valuable non quarterback for the 49ers last year? Ooh, that's a good question. Who do you think it is? I'll let you guys guess here. My guess would be Buckner. Yeah, I think that's a good guess. I, I would say that, oh man, if I think about valuable in terms of receiving being valuable um, and that being one of the more valuable things, it's probably going to be Marquise Goodwin over the course of a year because um, Pierre Garçon got hurt early um, yeah. or uh, Joe Staley. You guys are, are sprinkling the top five there. Buckner uh, ends up being second. Um, he was just under a win above replacement, which I think is actually pretty impressive considering that so much of the work he does is against the run. Um, and that's generally just a hard place to generate value. But he did have like uh, the most interior pressures, right? 
Yeah, I mean, he was really good on the interior, and the, the like the team stats bear that out. Like, I think with him off the field, their pressure rate falls below 30%. It'd be like last in the league. Um, and with him on there, it's like 35. But actually, I think one of the bigger misnomers was that the the Niners like couldn't generate any pressure. It wasn't great, but like wasn't nearly as bad as yeah. I think. Yeah. Um. You know, the lack of edge pressures would would dictate. Yeah, um, we we fought that so, fight early in the year. Early, I'm pretty sure we had at least two or three episodes early in the year saying pressure affects games. Uh, because everyone was like, oh, yeah. They're... I mean, people get tied up in the sacks, and that's uh, yeah. that's kind of was. And don't get me wrong, like sacks are are great. Obviously, they sacks kill drives, uh, but pressure drives. Yeah, but pressure but, still affect games. Exactly. And pressures predict future sacks better, right? So it's like if I'm, you know, if I'm trying to actually bet on a team just because they got a sack, you know, maybe it was a cleanup sack or something like that, right? And it doesn't really um, catch a bigger swath of their plays. And that's really the goal, right? Is to say like on every play, how do they actually perform? Um, So Buckner comes in second. And then I think, I think Ruben Foster, had he not kind of, missed as many snaps as he did yeah, would have right. eclipsed him because of how good he was in coverage. I mean, the guy was, was nuts. I want to say it was under a yard, uh, per coverage snap allowed like 0.7 or something like that, which is just, you know, otherworldly in terms of limiting, uh, you know, reception numbers. He was third, uh, Joe Staley was fourth and then Marquise Goodwin was fifth. Um, I think Goodwin, like he sort of came to life there, right? It's sort of yeah. over the course of the season. If he had done that, uh, probably would have been higher on that list. Nice. All right, so let's go. So we're going to kind of force you to give us a little bit of a sneak peek of of some of your uh, PFF forecast previews. So you guys, you you and Eric have been going through previewing each division, giving some projected win totals, bunch of information, uh, you know, on each of those guys. So where I think my first question is: Four Niners have the AFC West, have the NFC North on the schedule this year. Where do they land in that projected schedule difficulty? Yeah, they have not quite as hard a schedule, actually, as uh, as the Chargers. Or, sorry, as the Rams. Um, other LAT. I'm like staring at the win totals here, and I see LAC right above San Francisco. <laughs> but uh, the nice I thing... I bet you're wondering is, which soccer team that is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so so they're kind of lucked out because of where they finished um, in, the, in the division there, and that has actually had a negative effect on some other uh, you know, bottom feeders strength of schedule, but they are, they have a little bit of an easier schedule than, uh, than the Rams, um, than the Seahawks, which, um, I think will help them out a little bit. And, and we actually have them, um, their win total after our simulations is higher than the Rams win total, which, uh, I think will shock a ton of people. And I'm not sure I feel good about it. I was not I ready for that. Uh, yeah, I don't know that I was ready for that either. What and, and your win totals, the distribution's not that wide, right? Like it's usually between like you know ten games and like seven games, right? It's it's not a huge distribution, right? I mean, the way that you know, the, just the nature of math, right? That things like wins are not, you know, you remember the outlier seasons, but those aren't the ones that happen the most often. And so, you know, it, basically the the upper threshold will be actually we have the Patriots winning over 10 games which is sort of surprising yeah. you rarely see a projection you know that high and i think the lowest we have is like six with the giants so yeah. um you know they're generally pretty close but the differences are still notable and um i think the reason you know san francisco has an easier strength of schedule so that's that's a, a big component but um quarterback is so important and and coaching is too and if you compare them and the rams yeah certainly the rams have better players in other positions but i think jared goff jimmy g like 
at least the PFF grading says Jimmy G is a is a pretty decently better quarterback than Jared Goff. We'll see how that ends up next season. And and Kyle Shanahan was such a good coach. That is something that we consider in our simulation as well. So um, I, I don't feel great about it, but that's what the math <laughs> says at this point. Well, I'm okay with that. Uh, I mostly because most of my family they're either Rams or Cowboys fans. So any Oof. little piece of trash talk I can take into the family text chat, I am doing it right now. Well, I'll say this: I am a big fan of fading every single human being that decides to voice their opinion, and everyone wants to <laughs> hop on the Rams bandwagon. You know, the people that actually know things generally don't want to tell everyone else. It's the people that don't know anything that are like really ready to give you their opinion. So oh, um, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot a lot of it really does boil down to the quarterback. And a lot of the things the Rams did last season was, you know, sort of outside of the quarterback, like their supporting cast performed really, really, really well. Um, they had an incredible amount of health along the offensive line, um, you know, things like that, that generally don't repeat that well um and things like coverage for example those are actually far less stable so yeah it looks like on paper their coverage will be great but because of the way it works you know you think about coverage like you have one weak spot you have one injury and you get thin at one position you get attacked that kills your coverage right and that's why there's less stability there so when you're trying to predict something like wins you've just got to take stock of what's stable and that it happens to be the quarterback all right, so we've covered a lot of this episode. We've talked about expected points, EPA, wins above replacement, quarterback clustering, and, and the 49ers specifically. Now we're going to get to the fun part. We're going to get to the lightning round from the dark web. And this, do, do, we have a, do you have a Sampo Ranta flavor for me? Some sparkling So what's funny that? is here, here in the show notes, uh, it, as an example of how this game is played, it's, it's a pretty straightforward game, but you know, not everyone tracks right away. So we always try to give examples, and I'm going to throw out a question. It may have an either or, it may be an open-ended question, but you just give me your first word association answer. So the example I've got in the show notes here is, uh, for example, if I were to ask you, what's your favorite Samparanta flavor, what would that be? Treasonous tangerine, for I was sure. going to say that. If you didn't say it, I was going to say treasonous tangerine. <laughs> that was, That's that my was, favorite. I was proud of that one. I, you uh, know, I great. was proud of you. I was proud of you. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was a good one. I'm <laughs> definitely uh, on board with that one. I would like to buy that uh, at BevMo. Even though there are no BevMo's in Austin, Texas. I, really? I will there drive. Aren't? No, BevMo is a total regional ah. thing. We've got um, Specs. Okay. It's, it's, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's basically the same thing. It's, it's our BevMo. It's the thing that you never have the little like fob discount thing for. And the dude that registered, <laughs> I was like, I'm just going to scan the one that I have taped to the register because <laughs> right. no one else has one. Yeah, same one. Uh, all right. So we've got six questions here. Uh, and we'll just basically give me your first answer that comes to. Uh, here we go. Question Let's number one Momentum. Does it exist or is it bullshit? Bullshit. I like yes. it. <laughs> I like it. Uh, number two, what's your favorite 49ers game? Oh, my God. Uh, when they beat the Jaguars last season. All right. I like it. Uh, follow-up question. Uh, is Jalen Ramsey right? <laughs> not, in the, not in the case you're referencing. Yeah. <laughs> Fair. All right. Uh, question number, uh, I guess now four. Best cheeseburger you've ever had? That's in and out Oh, man. I thought we could be friends. It's okay. So I Nobody's will, perfect. I will Nobody's this. perfect. If, if I gave you my, my like answer, I would sound like this douchey, 
you know, uppity snob. Oh, we are here for it. We are here for the snobbiness. Okay, here, I I will preface, I will preface the snob by saying that one of my top four burgers in Austin, there are more than four, but one of my top four (laughs) is a happy hour burger at Clark's, which is an oyster bar. So you wouldn't think you would go there for a burger, but you do. And you have an option of getting like slaw or French fries as a side. You ask for slaw as a side, get them to put it on the burger and then get fries additionally. And on happy hour, you end up paying seven bucks. So the best burgers in the fucking city. So, and it's less than like $10, which is. Yeah, it's a gourmet burger. Like normally it's, you know, 13, 16 bucks. But when you go on happy hour, it's half price. Uh, So you end up getting, you know, a $16 burger for $7. And it's, it's amazing. It's one of the best burgers in the city. Okay. So. In, in honor of today, which is a special day, I'll tell you my favorite burger, which can be found in, in Los Angeles at a place called Animal. It's a restaurant, and it's called aptly the Boner Burger because <laughs> they've got some bone marrow uh, mixed into the, to the patty, and uh, they only make a certain amount every night. So like you, you get lucky, you get one. Um, I think that's apt as well, and uh, that's, that's my favorite burger. You know, uh, I, I think that the prevailing we've got a prevailing theme throughout the show, and it's not much different from the theme that we typically have on the show. Uh, I feel like you'd fit in real well on, on the podcast. It's you're officially a friend of the pod. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Uh, so moving on. Best cheeseburger. Great answer. Love it. Boner burger. That's going into the Pantheon. It is. We might have, to make, try a, it. We have to make a T-shirt out of it. Uh, I, no matter how nicely you ask, I will not try your boner. Uh, <laughs> All right, next question. What is the most difficult part of the CrossFit Games? Go. Oh, wow. Uh, watching them? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there is a, uh, someone of your name on the CrossFit boards uh, that CrossFits, and they compete, and they're not half bad, all things considered, at least based on their DC ranking. Uh, is that not you? That that is me. Um, I uh, it's not it's not like something special. I'm not I'm not particularly incredible, but um, you don't have to be I, incredible know, to have something to be difficult about it. It's that's fair. Uh, I'll put it this way: DC is not exactly the like most rigorous fitness uh, you know city in the world. So my ranking there is probably uh, higher than it should be. But uh, I work out and I like to compete, so do what I can. Yeah, fair. So I, my, I remember my, my big CrossFit moment was when I tried doing the Fran for the first time. Um, yeah, that was fun uh, and fun and like the I'm going to vomit kind of way. Here's uh, what I've got to ask about that. Were you vomiting because you had like 20 people around you like clapping and yelling at you <laughs> or you vomit? Because that's what would make me vomit first <laughs> is, is the like fake love that is, you know, doused upon you as you try and do something like physically. So I feel like arduous. that's the most difficult part is putting up with that. No, see, I, see, I don't, I don't do that. I can't do the class thing. I just can't do it. So <laughs> yeah, I when I did I, when uh, I did CrossFit, it was uh, when I did Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and we would basically do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu three times a week and CrossFit twice a week. Uh, and they were, I mean, they were a supportive group, but it was not like a clap kind of. Hey, let's do this all together. It was like, if you don't do this, I'll choke you out next time. Uh, <laughs> it was it was the silent judging. I'm okay with silent judging. That's I'm fine that, by that. That's the type of fear that we need more of in this world. <laughs> I support that. I'll I'll work out with you anytime. Fantastic. Uh, All right. So there is a mayor playlist 
uh, on your Spotify profile, M-A-Y-O-R. So tell me, what do you think the best John Mayer album is? Really? I don't see. I don't even use Spotify. Um, Man, it, I told you these were. This is a lightning round I from the dark deep, web. You went deep on the research here. You, you guys are impressive. Uh, what is? I, I don't even know any of his albums. Um, but I will say, "Your Body Is a Wonderland" is a fantastic <laughs> song. You know, I think it's fitting with the theme. We are nothing if not consistent. And if you if you don't know the through line through this episode, then my apologies. Listen to it again. <laughs> Oh man, I gotta go dust off some uh, <laughs> some John Mayer albums. Apparently, it's didn't a, know I liked him this much. It's a long playlist, dude. It, like, really? it, it's like troublingly long. <laughs> I switched over to Apple Music a while back, and one of my big issues is that their playlists aren't that great. So, I don't know. Maybe I gotta go back, dude. I, I worked for Apple yeah. for the probably the better part of seven years, and I jumped off the Apple Music train hard about three or four months in. It was like not okay, and the only reason I did it was because it was free. Right. Yeah. It's, it isn't as pleasant as I would have expected. Let's yeah. put it that way. Uh, all right. And last question in the lightning round. Uh, what is your prediction, non-math prediction, although I know it's probably influenced by math in some way, uh, what is your prediction for the 49ers record in 2018? Well, you know, what their actual record is, I'm not totally sure, but I have booked my Airbnb in Atlanta for this coming <laughs> February. I'm very excited uh, I'm looking forward to Jimmy G faces his former mentor and Tom Brady in the Super Bowl in Atlanta. It's going to be beautiful. I will say they go ten and six. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's, that's, I think that was that was uh, what Zach said Zach, as well. Yeah, I think Zach had yeah. Zach had him at ten and six. Look, um, there's a reason. There's a reason that Zach and I are are so close. It's because <laughs> he is a like-minded individual, and uh, I agree. <laughs> yeah that's fair i think we're still i'm not necessarily as bullish i think if all things break right i think they could end up with 10 wins but i'm, I'm i feel like i don't want to let myself be that optimistic i just like keep talking myself down to like ah need, they need one more year right yeah it's gonna it'll be like eight wins they're, they're gonna get to 500 this year but i don't know george it, it'll yeah. take you a while but you'll you'll become accustomed to to david's incessant pessimism <laughs> you will uh I, you'll you'll begin to form a hardened shell against it and try to be the sunflower that ends up taking him out of the doldrums. You know, it's, it's, it's it a role I've filled in over the last few years. And you know what? It's okay. See, what you have to realize is that I am, I am like David, very pessimistic. But I have fallen hard for the Jimmy Jesus bit. And I've committed. I've, I'm pot committed at this point. So the, the like, there's a lot of truth to my love. But there's also some of this like, you know, sarcasm that's like, hey, a guy can perform well for five games. Let's so like cool the Jets a little bit. Um, but I think that sort of faking it has like all of a sudden made me full in. Um, and so I'm, I'm optimistic. I, I, my Airbnb has multiple rooms. It's a very nice place. Uh, so when they, when they make it to Atlanta... Uh, you guys are more than welcome. Oh, All man. right, yeah. we're there. Absolutely, it's not. Uh, it's not too far from where we reside. So we'll. Uh, I'll bring you a good cheeseburger. Uh, it may. N- it may not include a boner. Uh, and then we will. We will deadlift while eating uh, some meat. It'll be great. I'm gonna skip the deadlift part. I'm yeah. <laughs> I'm here for the as, burger. I'm less here for the deadlift. <laughs> look, David. As long as you're not standing there like clapping or yelling, we're all good. Look, man, once I hit 30, it's just it's just all that. Like, I'm not even barely interested in working out anymore. Like, I should be. I know I should be. Um, I just can't. I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. 
we'll, you'll come, you know, we'll make the Super Bowl. We'll get you on the workout train. Uh, and if we stay in a nice enough place, close enough to, you know, Jimmy G's closest friends, the boners will be provided. So we won't have to worry about anything. <laughs> All right, I think deal. that's a, that's a fitting way to end uh, the interview. George, <laughs> it's been fun, man. Thanks for coming on. Uh, official friend of the pod status. Uh, definitely tune in to it for those listening to our podcast you would be well served by listening to the PFF forecast because uh, they do a lot, a lot of great, fun, very, very sarcastic work. George, thanks for coming on, man. It was a blast. Hey, you guys are the best. See you guys. All right. Well, that wraps up our latest episode of Smart Football Month. Tune in again next week when we come back with the final installment of Smart Football Month because football's on the way, man. It's almost Dude. here. The Hall of Fame game is, what, like less than two weeks away. I think two weeks, uh, we're recording this, what, Thursday night? I think it's exactly two weeks away from now. Uh, that's insane. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing a bunch of babies cry about Terrell Owens' Hall of Fame induction. It's going to be great. Oh, my God, I'm not going to watch that at all. Uh, I'm not watching it at all either, but I'm totally no. Team T.O., man. Do, do what he wants. Do what he wants. The it's Hall of, induction. Yeah, the Hall of Fame is like, oh, he doesn't exist. It's going to be about the guys who are here. Whatever, get I out mean, of here. Get the stick out of your ass. Seems par for the course for the Hall of Fame. Yeah, fair. Uh, so thanks again for tuning in. Leave those reviews on iTunes if you like what you're hearing uh, because it helps other people discover the show and it helps us, well, get discovered, which is important because more listeners, especially Niner fans, are always good. Make sure you get to our merch store on TeePublic. You can find the link on my Twitter page. It's at Better Rivals. David, where can they follow you? Uh, that's going to be at Newman NFL. Make sure you tune in next week for the final installment of Smart Football Month. And as always, go Niners. Hey everybody, it's Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge. I host a podcast every week called The Verge Cast with my friends Paul Miller and Dieter Bone. We've got a rotating cast of characters from our entire site, which is about technology, how it impacts culture, and how that is all a big cycle that causes us to have a wide variety of feelings that you can listen to every Friday. We've done over 300 episodes in the six years since The Verge has been around, but you only need to listen to one, the latest one, to get caught up on everything in tech news. Vergecast is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else you listen to podcasts, check it out.